So this weekend is quite a significant weekend. We're coming to the end of it. Um, but it's significant, I think, for two reasons. The first reason is that it's Father's Day today. Um, so it's, I should almost say happy belated Father's Day, because like at the end of the day, happy Father's Day to all the fathers that are present. Um, happy Father's Day to the fathers in waiting. <laughs> um, bless you guys. The second reason that this weekend, and particularly Friday, is a day of significance is that Friday, as we know, um, was June 16th, and it's a day that we commemorate something that happened in our country. And today we call it Youth Day. And this evening we're actually wanting to, to focus again on the, on the issue of justice and the value and the high regard that our Father places on justice. And we're going to try to use the significance of what happened on Friday as, a, as an introduction into, again, just considering this topic of justice and how it relates to us and our walk and our following of, of Jesus as the Messiah. And so as we start out, I've asked Cindy to come and give me a hand, um, and she's going to remind us of the significance of today. Um, in our country, and then I'll take it from there. Okay, good evening, everybody. Hi. Um, so, yes, we had a long weekend. Can I just ask, before I say anything, do we know why Friday was a holiday? Youth Day. What does that mean? <laughs> what does Youth Day mean to you? You didn't have to go to varsity. What does it mean? Do you know why we celebrate Youth Day in South Africa? The Soweto Uprising, that's absolutely correct. So um, this evening, Bevan's just asked me just to, to do a short, maybe I suppose a history lesson. Um, just so that uh, we remember what happened on that day. So click, please. Um, the Soweto Uprising, as Mike said, took place on the 16th of June, 1976. That's a very long time ago. And uh, what it was really was a group of students, many students, not only in Soweto, but across the country. And they were protesting the education system, the fact that they were forced to uh, learn in Afrikaans, which was not the um, first language. Um, but besides that, I think it's important that we understand that at that time, because of the apartheid laws, there wasn't one education system like we have today. We have people preparing for our matric exams coming up soon, midterms are over. Um, Everybody is writing the same paper all across the country. But back then, there were different um, education systems. And the Bantu education system in particular did not allow people to study things like science and mathematics. And um, also, the schools were very under-resourced. So while uh, schools that white learners could go to 
um, black learners could not have the same resources, the number of textbooks, the number of teachers, science laboratories, sports fields, swimming pools, etc. It just wasn't equal. And then came this, now you have to do all your schoolwork in Afrikaans. And the students just absolutely said, this is not on, and they started to protest. So I have three pictures here. The one on the left is of Enos. Enos wrote a letter to the Minister of Education at that time to say, dude, this is not fair. <laughs> this is not right. And it was a very well-articulated letter, and, you know, trying to reason with authority and do it in the correct channels. You know, he went, it's, it was addressed to the Minister of Education at the time, so he followed all the protocols, and he was a student at Naledi High School. Um, that was on the 13th of June. They tried to arrest him after he wrote that letter, but they uh, were unsuccessful first time round. The second person on the top right there, his name is Tsitsi Mashinini, Tseboho Mashinini. He was one of the, um, how shall I put it, um, he, was very, he was a charismatic leader, and he rallied all the students through the South African student movement to get everybody together to, to walk from Naledi High School to Isaac, um, Modest Isaacson High School, and everybody was going to walk all the way to the Orlando Stadium down Soweto. And uh, he was very charismatic, and he made sure that people understood that we need to do this in a peaceful way. We just want... Justice, we want to be able to learn in our own language. Um, unfortunately, that day, it was a day of great bloodshed. Many people lost their lives. The photographer down below, Sam Zima, he took a picture. Well, he took many pictures, but one picture in particular of that day's proceedings went viral, as we would say. And this was the picture of Hector Peterson. That's Hector Peterson being carried, and that's his sister Antoinette running next to him. Hector was 12 years old. He was shot dead by the police at that time. When this picture was published and made the rounds across the world, um, it was only then, really, that people became more aware of the injustice in our country, especially around education, but also just around everything that uh, apartheid meant in the day-to-day -day lives of people. Um, and so that is why we have a public holiday on the 16th of June. Um, you know, I know that people often say, oh, it was long ago. Why do we still need to remember this? Um, we know that our education is very important. Um, for some of you, you are familiar with the Reading for Hope program that the school is, uh, that the church is involved in at the Silverly School. That was my primary school. Children are still struggling to read today, 2023. The school only recently had a library that many of the Pinelanders helped to, to um, bring about through donations and assistance, like 2020s now, this year. The effects are long-lasting. 
I matriculated in 94, and I was at Garland and High School, which was also, everybody in the school looked like me. <laughs> the first time I saw white learners in the classroom was um, when I went to university. It was a culture shock, just not being aware of, oh, there's, you know, people being free to ask questions in class. I was like, you don't talk, <laughs> you listen. And even today, I still struggle, like just standing here right now is an issue for me <laughs> to be able to speak freely, um, simply because of the way that I was taught at school. So yeah, that was June 16th, 1976. So I, th I think it's, it's very important that all South Africans acknowledge the significance of that because it still affects us today. And we need to recognize the fact that there's a lot of work that needs to be done to undo some of those things collectively for all of us. Um, as citizens of this beautiful country, we want to have a bright hope, um, not only in the spiritual sense, but in the physical sense as well, for all of our countrymen and women. And so we want, to, we want to engage in acts of justice and mercy because we want to see God's kingdom come and become a reality for people who may have been negatively impacted by the, the, the matters of the past. Now, on that particular day, that um, photograph that's up there, um, the march was organized, and it was something that happened across the country. So in different cities across the country, students mobilized themselves um, and marched on that day. Now I want to ask you a question by means of introduction. I don't want you to, to, to answer out loud. I just want you to sit with a question and to think about it. Do you think that Jesus would have been present marching with those children. All things considered, as we know Jesus, as we've come to understand who he is and what he stands for, do you think he would have been there? And then why would you think that? Now, when I think back to um, the context of Jesus' time, of Israel, of Judea, of Galilee, of Jerusalem, um, and I think about what it was like then, I wondered if Jesus in that space and in that time might have been involved more so than what we interpret from scripture in action that would have um, really questioned the authority of the time. Because in Jesus' time, there was much to protest about. Um, but it also goes a lot deeper than just that. In fact, ranging all the way from the Genesis story to the final vision of of God's saving work in the book of Revelation, 
we see the setting of God's people always amidst various superpowers or empires of the biblical world. From Egypt and Babylon right the way down to Rome, we always see God's people being situated in spaces where they face some kind of oppression, if you think about that. The narratives that we engage with in Scripture. And so when Jesus comes up against the powers of his own time, he is also, in a sense, continuing in the prophetic tradition of God's people, a tradition that goes back for centuries. You see, in, in Jesus' time, all of Judea was under Roman rule. And um, confronting the powers of the day would have been something that was unavoidable for Jesus. Jesus would not have been able to avoid confrontation with the powers of the day. In fact, when he was approached about paying tax in Mark chapter 12, this is what Jesus said. He said, bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and he asked them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, give back to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. You see, Jesus didn't live in a, in a place or a time when all was well in the land for all of its citizens. Jesus lived in a time where there was much turmoil. Um, being colonized by the Romans brought with it many difficulties. Similarly, I think in some ways to what Africa has experienced by being colonized by Europe. Um, all of the yellow section that you see there that would have been the range of the Roman Empire in Jesus' time. Um, so the entire Mediterranean basin, all of those right to the top of Africa, all of that was colonized by Rome. And Rome ruled all of that space. And Jesus lived there in Judea, a tiny little space, Judean province, possibly the size of the Western Cape, maybe, more or less. That small space, that was where Jesus was. Now, being colonized by the Romans, as I say, brought with it a lot of difficulties, challenges, oppression. And one of the ways that people experienced this was through taxation. Heavy taxation, in fact, was one of the big ways that people felt the strong arm of Rome leaning down on them. And the money that was taken through taxes wasn't used in their own communities, in their own region. The money went back to Rome. As, um, as part of their strategy, what the Romans did was they would take a census in Judea so that nobody could escape having to pay the oppressive taxes that they demanded. So they knew exactly how many people there were, 
And so they had an idea of understanding how much money they would be able to collect through their taxes. In fact, it was, it was projected by some um, scholars that the total tax burden was estimated to have been possibly up to 60% of your income. They had taxes like an annual poll tax for the number of people in your family. They had property taxes based on the size of the property that you owned. There was an inheritance tax. If you inherited anything from your family, you'd be taxed on that, just like today. They obviously had sales tax, like today. There was a slave transfer tax. So if I owned a slave and I gave my slave to Mike, there would be a tax that would come on that and Rome would take their, their cut. There was a produce tax. And so if I yielded a really good crop based on the size of my crop, I would have to pay tax for that. There was even a tax, um, or a toll rather, when things needed to be moved around. So if I wanted to export some of my stuff to the, to the town the next um, uh, way over, there would be a toll attached to that. Now, now, for the Jews in Judea, it would have been all of that, um, as well as the tax that they needed to pay within their religious system. So there was this religious tax that was required by the Jewish temple state in the form of what we might call a tithe. And so their people had to negotiate also the annual temple tax. Then there were temple sacrifices tax. So if you brought a sacrifice to the temple, there was a tax that you needed to pay to the priests for them to administer your, um, your sacrifice. There was a tithe for herds and crops that you would bring to the temple that you would need to pay. There was a tithe for wild food. So if I was someone who went out and I hunted and I gathered out in the felt, I needed to pay a tax to the temple based on the amount that I brought. And then there was also a contribution to priests for dedications and vows that I, that I and my family might want to make. So people in that time faced heavy oppression in terms of taxation. There's this historian named Richard Horsley, and he describes it like this. He says the demand for tribute to Rome and taxes to Herod, in addition to the tithes and offerings to the temple and priesthood, dramatically escalated the economic pressures on peasant producers, whose livelihood was perennially marginal at best. After decades of multiple demands from multiple layers of rulers, many village families fell increasingly into debt and were faced with loss of their family inheritance of land. The impoverishment of families led to the disintegration of village communities, the fundamental social form of such an agrarian society. These are precisely the deteriorating conditions that Jesus addresses in the Gospels. Impoverishment, hunger, and debt. And then on top of that, if anyone tried to go against Rome to protest, 
or to resist, they would be severely punished. They would be severely punished. And, and crucifixion was but one of the examples of the ways that Rome would deal with someone who went against the ruling powers. So what response would Jesus have had? Living in a society where this kind of oppression was dominant and accepted in some way. As a rabbi, Jesus had options for the way that he could respond. And Jesus' response would invariably have aligned him with the aspirations of others. Some people who went along with Rome and again others who would have gone against Rome. So whatever uh, standpoint or stance that Jesus took in that time, he would have been aligning himself with some of those groups. So what were the options that Jesus had when he observed the kind of oppression that was going on? What were the options that Jesus had even in the back of his mind as he was preaching the message of the gospel to these people who while they were sensing the spiritual presence of him, the Messiah, amongst them who would then need to go back home and need to face the kinds of challenges of the day. What were these options before Jesus? I've, I've got a few here for us just to, to have a look at. There may have been one or two more that were up open to Jesus, but the first one is this. Jesus could have collaborated or aligned himself with the Sadducees. The Sadducees were the military and they were the priestly ruling class. They were extremely wealthy. They lived only in Jerusalem, not in the outskirts. They lived in the capital city. And they were generally the family of the high priests. So lots of nepotism within that space. They were also the ones who decided to collaborate with Rome. Um, and they hoped that Israel could exist along with Roman rule. And they figured the, the more they aligned the Roman rule with their lives, that they would do better. Um, the Sadducees were also the ones who ultimately made the decision and the push to have Jesus crucified. Um, even though we, we engage a lot in the Gospels with the Pharisees, as it drew to the end, it was the Sadducees who were the ones who pushed for that. The second option that was open to Jesus with who he might want to align himself with if he were to do that was to go along with the Pharisees. They were the ones who understood all of Israel as being God's royal priesthood. And they believed that independence from Roman oppression would only come if all of Israel lived under the purity restrictions that were placed there by the priests. Um, if all of Israel would become devout again, um, then God would rid Israel of these Gentile invaders who, are, who were the Romans. And while we often see them in the gospel as the villains, um, 
The Pharisees were actually the moderates um, between the Roman collaboration and the active Roman resistance. And then there was a third option, which were these guys called the Zealots. Now, instead of active collaboration like the Sadducees and spiritual reform like the Pharisees, the Zealots actively resisted Roman oppression. They were militant nationalists. So they were the guys who were the ones who had swords and spears and shields. They were, they were the, the, the ones, they were the enforcers, as it were, in that time. And they believed not in spiritual purity, but they wanted literal purity of the land. And they hoped to recruit ordinary people um, in the villages and in the countryside to join them. And they believed that once um, all of Israel joined this physical fight, a little war as it were, then God would miraculously intervene on the side of Israel. And then the next option would be the Essenes. These were people who were meticulous about observing the law. The Sabbath and the ritual purity were things that they pursued diligently. They completely devoted their lives to it, to the degree that it was only men who formed these communities and they formed these communities not in the cities or in the villages. They removed themselves from that spaces and set themselves up out in the desert. This was also the group of people who produced um, a lot of the very early writings that exist that are connected to the Old Testament. Um, the, 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 the Dead Sea Scrolls, we believe, were written by by the Essenes. So that's them. And then the last option that I've come up with, like I said, there might be one or two more, was just an option for Jesus to have this sense of resignation, to align himself with a common people. They were the ones who were beyond the wealth, beyond the spiritually devout the zealous people who would want to actively fight, they were just the ordinary people of everyday life. These were the ones who formed the crowds that followed Jesus. They were also the ones who bore the brunt of the excessive taxation and the Roman anger for these attacks by the zealots. They were the ones who had to deal with that. And they were the common people who were wearied, tired, and just resigned to their own fate under this Roman colonial oppression present in their land. So which path would Jesus choose? Would he go, would he, would he, would he go along with the Sadducees? Would he choose to go with the Pharisees or the Essenes? the zealots, or would he just resign himself to just living under that kind of rule? You see, Jesus came from the common people. He ministered to common people. He was followed and celebrated by crowds of common people. 
And outside observers, and even some of the 12 disciples, I think, would have been watching Jesus and wondering how Jesus would fit into or how he would resist the options that were before him. Would he stand against Rome in the way that they wanted him to? Would he stand against the Jewish leadership who were taking advantage of people, who were twisting the laws? Or would he simply go along with everything that was going bad in his time? And at times we see in scripture how Jesus was being pushed into a particular direction when crowds or followers demanded that Jesus become what they wanted him to be. But I think Jesus brought an alternative to all of those options. We don't see Jesus in the streets rioting and protesting against Rome when we read through the Gospels. We don't see him um, wanting to actively fight the Jewish leadership. Neither do we see him teaching people to just give up and accept their fate. We don't see those things when we read through the Gospels. In Matthew 3 and into 4, we see Jesus. He's baptized by John. We reflected on that this morning at Explore. He goes into the desert where he's tested by the Satan. He comes back from that, and then Matthew says from that time, Jesus started to preach. And this is what he preached, and we know this. He said, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus' entire three-year ministry revolved around this reality of a new kingdom being established. Jesus' kingdom and its rule was not and is not like Rome's kingdom. It's not strong and overpowering and able to impose its will on others. That's not Jesus' kingdom. It's not about working to build wealth. It's not about infrastructure and might. A place where the strong overpower the weak and exploit and extract resources. And it's nothing like the South African government either. Jesus says, in fact, that the greatest person in his kingdom is the weakest. Someone who loves and serves the poor. Jesus says we live under God's reign and rule when we respond to evil and the powers that be by loving our enemies and forgiving them and seeking and working to find peace. It's an upside-down kingdom that makes no sense to the kingdom of this world. And Jesus, I believe, wants us to align ourselves with him in this. Not the right or the left. There's an alternative that Jesus presents to us, and he wants us to follow him in that. Our response as followers of Jesus 
to governments that appear to have lost the plot concerning what good governance and care and ministry should be is to love them. But also to stand up for the principles of the constitution of the kingdom of heaven. And that is not easy. In fact, it's quite messy. And it requires us to actually get our hands dirty and to rethink how we live our lives in the societies and the communities that we live in, to rethink how we use the resources that he gives us to steward. It requires us to live in a different way. And it's a way that sounds foolish in both word and deed, in fact. And Jesus used his death on the cross to bring to a climax his time of earthly ministry. He also communicated to all of humanity the value that we hold as image bearers of God. But when Jesus was crucified on that day, the Romans who were ruling and reigning over that part of the world also wanted to accomplish something with the crucifixion of Jesus. With the crucifixion, the Romans wanted to humiliate Jesus. And they wanted to make the statement that the rights of this Jewish peasant rabbi do not matter. But what Rome had intended as a sarcastic coronation of Jesus as king with a crown of thorns actually presents to us a real coronation of a king who we know as Jesus. When Rome raised Jesus up on the cross, they were really raising him up as their future emperor, as their future ruler and king. And nothing could have been more in line with the way Jesus acted and taught. By taking the ultimate symbol in that way of Roman power, crucifixion, and overthrowing it, subverting it is the word that we used, the power of Rome itself was shaken in that moment. And what is interesting is that the gospel writers, the ones who wrote these words that we read and meditate on, they could not have known it at the time, but within a few centuries from when they wrote, the Roman Empire indeed would fall and a new world order started to rise. But before Rome was shuffled off into history, they managed to acknowledge Jesus as the ultimate ruler and handed Christianity one of the most powerful and unconsciously, I think, ironic symbols in the world. Our response as believers and followers of Jesus, an engagement with the challenges that we face during these last days, must be to rally around this act of 
sacrificial love for God and our neighbors as modeled for us by Jesus. Jesus has secured for us the right to have our names recorded in the Lamb's Book of Life and to stand in the presence of the Father on the day of the Lord. I want to come back again to that question that I asked at the start. Do you think Jesus would have been present on that day? And if so, in what way?